Черный пес Петербург, птичий ужас прохожих, втиснутых в окна ночных фонарей, на волков скомвоют волки, похоже, завтра там будет еще веселей. And I'm Lindsay. This here is our inebriational travelogue of St. Petersburg. Uh, so in this podcast, we're going to be doing something a little different. So you're about to listen to our historical trip uh, to St. Petersburg, where we explored Russian history and all the craziness that that subject implies. Also, we like to dedicate this travelogue to our forever giggling travel buddy on this trip, Korsovitsia. Been through a couple of name changes, but it started out St. Petersburg. Uh, when Peter the Great decided that, God damn it, Russia was going to be European. And so he starts building palaces in this swampy ground that uh, most of the nobles he surrounded himself with weren't really all that excited to move to. There's a reason that he found it pretty much uninhabited when he took it over from the Swedes, even though its waterways had been used by traders for, like, centuries. Its major river, Neva, is the Finnish word for swamp, if that tells you anything about it. And despite being a Baltic port, ice renders it pretty ineffective for months out of the year. As it is, it's the northernmost major city in the world. Um, when construction started, the land hadn't been in Russian hands for more than, like, a month. Um, and so had a couple of battles turned out differently, there might just be this lone swampy fortress in Swedish territory on land that Peter had hoped would one day be Russia's metropolis. Whether you call it the Paris or Venice of the East, either way, the city was literally built on the bones of the slave laborers who were forced to build it and who died building it. Historians think that some 100,000 people are buried directly below St. Petersburg's gorgeous Parisian-style streets. So he's called the Great, but he's still responsible for a multitude of his own people's deaths. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, and his and his son and a bunch of his son's friends when he had even the whiff that the son might betray him. Also, virtually executed a ton of soldiers who he thought were supporting Sophia and, and probably were kind of supporting Sophia. He wasn't exactly given to second thoughts or mercy. Okay, well, we're going to start out on the banks of the Neva on the palace embankment. So right across the water there is Menshikov Palace. Okay, uh, Peter the Great's best friend was Alexander Menshikov, who had a great deal of power in the empire, who for two years was the actually de facto ruler, and who was who also happened to be a corrupt thief. He looted <laughs> Poland once, uh, stole 100,000 rubles from the government in 1713, and didn't really do much about the corruption taking place in his own governor generalship. Peter beat him up a few times, but in the end... <laughs> Peter never did anything more than that. Menshikov got ill, actually, just after Peter found out about Menshikov's defrauding the, the government, his own government, for 100,000 rubles. And so Peter ultimately took pity once again on this friend that he loved so much and turned a blind eye to Menshikov's corruption. So the Menshikov Palace was a residence built for um, him when he was the governor. It was finished in 1711. It was the first stone building in the city. Also, it was the site of a couple of pretty distinctive weddings. Peter married off his niece, Anna, the the daughter of, like, his quote-unquote co-ruler, Ivan V, who is basically just... 
this half-wit invalid who wasn't really the ruler, but apparently still could get it on because he had some issue. He married Anna off to this German duke named Frederick. Peter personally participated in the wedding. Uh, part of the ritual was holding the crown over the bride's head, but he got bored with that about halfway through it and told the priest to hurry up. So uh, they skipped a bit. <laughs> and there's fireworks and a banquet and ball and all that. And I guess Peter thought that was good fun, but it was missing a little something. So he decided to have another wedding a few days later. The little something that the first wedding was lacking was midgets. <laughs> Peter was a huge fan of midgets, and one historian said the six-foot-seven-inch czar loved his contingent of resident dwarfs who were liable to surprise guests by leaping from pies, sometimes while naked, uh, dancing on tables or trotting in on miniature ponies, as well as performing domestic duties and running errands. I, I know I would be surprised if a naked midget jumped out of my cake. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, Peter has midgets and dwarfs trucked in from, like, all over the country and marries off one of his favorite midget servants, um, who's also apparently a gunsmith who made the fireworks to be used after the ceremony. He takes these midgets over to, like, all the, you know, noblemen's houses of St. Petersburg and is like, hey, here's a midget. Dress him up. He's going to a wedding. (laughs) The dwarves were given the center of the banquet hall, and as much liquor as they could drink, uh, though their clothes were now the most refined since many were from the country and used to peasant life, their manners were not, and brawls and body dancing broke out while the nobles sat at their own tables and watched in delight. Some think that Peter had more than just a good time in mind and meant this as a lesson to the nobles around, that they were looking on these dwarves in their fine clothes that were ill-suited to their actions and stature and laughing, just as the courts of Europe looked upon them and thought the same thing. But in any case, the whole celebration was kind of pointless, since on the way back, the Duke Anna had married, felt entirely worse for the days of carousing, took ill, and died. Anna was still shipped off to an insignificant German duchy where she spent the rest of Peter's life sending him cheerful notes, asking for money or to be allowed to come home. So when she got her chance at the throne, she seemed well-determined to live it up. So yeah, we're going to walk along the river, and on your right, you're going to go by the Bronze Horseman statue and see the Dome of St. Isaac's behind it. So the Bronze Horseman is a statue of Peter the Great on a rearing horse, and the back hooves and tail of the horse are resting on uh, this treacherous serpent that the horse is crushing underfoot. The base is this huge Ice Age boulder that got hauled in all the way from the Gulf of Finland. When advisors around Catherine were skeptical about the idea of the snake, thought that it was maybe just a bit on the nose, uh, the sculptor had to point out to them that the serpent was also there for the very pragmatic reason of without it, the horse wouldn't have the amount of support it needed to actually be able to stay up. Because apparently actually making a huge bronze horseman be rearing up is not exactly easy balance-wise. So Catherine was just like, well, guess we're going to have to do it, and uh, had him proceed with the sculpture as he planned. Um, and so inscribed on the base in both Cyrillic and Latin is to Peter I from Catherine II, which was her bald-faced attempt at linking her name with that of the founder of St. Petersburg. Um, Pushkin wrote a well-loved poem about the statue, and when the siege of Leningrad came, though it was covered in scaffolding and still at great risk of bombing, the the statue was not removed. Uh, Some said that there was a legend that the city could never fall while the statue stood, and it did not. Ah, the siege of Leningrad. 
It's an absolutely boggling testament of all that a city can go through and still survive. It was 872 days of siege from September of 1941 to January of 1944. Its pre-war population was 3.3 million. Then as the Nazis drew in for the siege, that would last inadequate. Evacuations began. Exact numbers of starvations are hard to come by because Soviet cover-ups and... Some sources suggest that half the population that had not evacuated died in that first winter. I feel that we can get away with this in the scope of our podcast, though, because what with all the enlisted men and those that Stalin purged in the lead-up to the war, women had already begun taking over their fathers, brothers, and husbands' positions in the workforce. By December of 1942, women made up more than three out of four industrial employees and four out of five factory workers. By this time, the city's population was made up of about 637,000 people. So that's the short version. So when you hear us mention the siege, that's what we're going to be talking about. This area is also known as Senate Square, but from 1925 until 2008, it was known as the Decemberist Square, since this is where the Decemberist revolts took place against the succession of Nicholas I. Um, in 1825, after Alexander I, uh, that's Catherine's grandson, died, and his brother Constantine refused the succession. Like, through the Soviet era and after that, it's usually pointed to as, like, one of the big first revolts against the Tsars. But as we keep walking down the Neva River, let's tell you about another wedding that took place. This one on the river itself. This one also was involving Anna Ivanovna and her the midget wedding. When we saw the bronze statue of Anna Ivanovna at the Russian Museum, uh, the audio guide quoted Countess Shermitsova on the Empress, um, saying she was frightful to look at, with a disgusting face, and she was so big that when she walked among men, she was a head taller than everybody else and extremely fat. <laughs> Though the statue of her was super impressive, she, she didn't look ugly at all. She looked, like, really awesome in that statue. <laughs> your friend. Another said that despite her lack of beauty, she had noble and magnificent features. In terms of her physical makeup, she was tough and could withstand many blows. Uh, maybe it was her own strange wedding that gave her the idea, but Anna went a little wedding planner herself, just like Uncle Pete. Uh, also, like her Uncle Pete, she had a special fondness for dwarves and jesters and others, shall we say, distinctive people. One of her favorites was, as a source put it, a stunted old Kalmuk woman who was so ugly that even the priests were afraid of her. So when this favorite said she wanted to marry, Anna thought this was a rather bully idea and remembered how one of her favorite gestures, gestures an elder former nobleman, Galitsyn, was a widower and in need of his wife. So she lets him know that she's found him a new bride and she'd pay all the wedding expenses. And uh, when she said she'd pay all the expenses... She wasn't kidding. Yeah. So uh, she built an ice castle on the river between the Winter Palace and the Admiralty. And it's not like an igloo. It's 60 feet long, 20 feet wide, and 30 feet high, just with colonnades and statues and turrets. And so she builds the newly couple an apartment in it with curtains, pillows, mattress, and adjoining bathroom all cut from ice. And a dining room even, but with formal china all laid out on the, the ice banquet table. Ice cannons, ice cannonballs, and even an ice elephant that could shoot water 24 feet in the air. And in case you were feeling a bit too cold, there were two ice pyramids papered on the inside with humorous and obscene images. So on February 6, 1740, she had a large parade. The newlyweds rode in on elephant back and were sent off to their honeymoon in this ice castle. Her Majesty personally escorted the couple to their wedding chamber. 
Then posted sentries at all the exits, so they couldn't leave. Fortunately, they emerged with nothing but runny noses and a touch of frostbite instead of freezing to death, which, to be honest, I don't think Anna would have given a fuck if they did. Later, they even traveled around together, the happy couple, and they stayed married until the wife died in childbirth, and he even later got married again, so I guess the experience didn't scar him too much. <laughs> okay, onto the Windsor Palace, and you can't fucking miss it. Uh, it's huge, and it's a really pretty green. <laughs> it's very pretty green. <laughs> it's just this immense building that was the home of the Tsars from 1732 until their fall, 1917. And also, it houses the Hermitage Museum, one of the largest art collections in the world that was started from Catherine the Great's personal collection. The Winter Palace has been calculated to contain 1,786 doors, 1,945 windows, 1,500 rooms, and 117 staircases. I feel a little bit like the History Channel. And one of them is really big. Oh, if you guys haven't seen it, you should check out the movie Russian Ark, which is this movie that's just one long, continuous cut of the Hermitage Museum. It's totally worth a watch. It was, like, kind of built up by a bunch of different czars. There's lots of different architectural styles in it. Everyone left their own personal mark. Uh, for instance, when our friend Iv- Anna Ivanovna found her way into the Winter Palace, she took up a hobby that is likely unique in its history. To quote one historian, she ordered that loaded rifles be kept in every room of the Winter Palace. Sometimes she would be struck by an irresistible impulse and cracked open a window so she would snap up her weapon and shoot a bird out of the sky. As the salon shook with the explosion and filled with gun smoke, she would call her startled ladies-in-waiting and order them to do the same under penalty of being dismissed. <laughs> I could I could do that if I was lady-in-waiting and my boss was like, shoot the bird! I'd be like, okay! <laughs> Other than a short burst of Paul living in the Michalowski Palace, which is a building he built uh, because he didn't feel safe in the Winter Palace, from Peter I until Alexander III, the palace was the primary residence of the royals. Paul lived in his new digs about 40 days until he was assassinated. That now houses part of the Russian Museum of Art, a portrait gallery, in fact, Lindsay, so we were there. Yeah, I actually, the Hermitage is great, but if you want to see Russian art, I would definitely recommend the Russian Museum, uh, because they actually have Russian art. Uh, Hermitage doesn't have anything but European shit. So you're like, wait, are you in Russia? So, uh, but the Winter Palace, uh, back to the Winter Palace, it was not innocent of intrigue either. A bomb that attempted to take out Alexander II only failed because their German state guest was late for dinner. After another attempt on Alexander II succeeded, um, more on that later, security advisors said there was no way that the palace could be kept safe, and it was only used for state occasions. In fact, the last photo of Nicholas and Alexandra, uh, Nicholas II, the last Tsar, was taken at a ball there in 1903. You should look it up. It's really creepy looking. It just totally looks like it should be from The Shining, where all the black and white photos in the the ballroom. They're all dressed up in like 16th century garb, but Alexander would still stay there when she was in St. Petersburg instead of Peterhof or um, Sarkisolo, as did her buddy Rasputin. Legend has it he once came out nude onto the balcony, waved that infamous unit around, and yelled out, this rules Russia. Do you remember when we looked up his penis online? (laughs) I know, we never got there. Supposedly his penis is at the Museum of Sex in St. Petersburg, but it looked really disgusting enough in photos, and I I just can't believe that they really would have planned to have that much to save it. I'm sorry. It's horrible. (laughs) It's probably like freaking, I don't want to think about how else they got it, but I doubt that that's really Rasputin's way. 
uh, when you're fucking mutilating a guy and hauling him out of a river, I don't think you just suddenly just go, wow, shit, we better hack this off and stick it in a jar of formaldehyde so it can later be in the Museum of Sex. Come on. No, no it was legendary, though. It was legendary. Yeah, apparently he had a 12-inch monster, they say. <clears throat> God. But... Partly because of Rasputin, uh, ruling Russia wasn't really all that much to be proud of at that point. First, uh, a bunch of protesters were fired upon at the nearby Narva Gate, killing about a thousand, according to some numbers. Uh, this was called Bloody Sunday. Then, when Russia joined in on World War One, they didn't do so hot. Uh, several of the great halls of the Winter Palace were being used as field hospitals. Um, you walk down these corridors with these marble the chandeliers and the walls lined with like the most expensive European art and just think that there was all these gurneys there just filled with like wounded trench warfare soldiers. A little strange. Nicholas II renamed it Petrograd, the city. In 1914, when Russia went to war with Germany, they renamed it Petrograd to make it sound more Russian and less Germanic. Um, but the Romanov dynasty finally ended after 300 years of rule in St. Petersburg when the Russian people became fed up with the mismanagement of this war by Nicholas II. Uh, St. Petersburg is a revolutionary city that can easily be called the intellectual center of Russia, just as Peter the Great had always rather hoped. And, and Catherine, come on, let's not kid ourselves. Not only do Lenin and Trotsky come from the city, but so again in modern Russia does power lay with the Petersburg-born Russian president, Vladimir Putin and his gaggle of Petersburg cronies. They're called the Petersky. Yeah, it's the Russian word for it, the Petersky. The cronies from Petersburg. (laughs) But before there was the neo-Soviet Petersburg cruel ruling modern Russia, there were the Soviets whose reign began with the overthrow of the Romanov dynasty, like I mentioned, in the February Revolution of 1917, which went down in Petrograd. Nicholas and the royal family fled to Yekaterinburg shortly afterwards, where they were all shot about ten months later. All of them. Whatever you've been told about Anastasia, it's bullshit. She died. She was fucking murdered. Deal with it. Disney. Back in Petrograd, an ineffective provisional government made up of a mixture of Democrat of socialists... Socialist intellectuals basically took over the Winter Palace for about six months. Uh, The February Revolution began in the streets in 1917 with an especially strong outcry from the women of Petrograd who were sick of waiting in line for hours for bread for their children. And Tsar Nicholas II, being a political boob and who was away when the shit started going down anyway, having decided in time-honored tradition of incompetent rulers, hey, I have no military experience. Shit, why don't I go tell the army what to do? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, he was away, but he ordered the outcry to be put down with a violent force, which of course, as we often learn, just strengthens the resolve of protesters. Royal soldiers fired into a crowd of angry angry protesters, killing about 20, but afterwards the soldiers didn't really feel too great about themselves. And if you were trying to hold down the rule of law with the military, then you should probably be sure that they still like you. (laughs) Nicholas lost the, the support of his army, and he was done for. Um, along with the Romanov dynasty and about 30 or 40 socialist intellectuals gathered in the Winter Palace to form what would become the really unpopular and ineffectual provisional government for the next six months. Problems with the provisional government stemmed largely from them waiting around for the Constituent Assembly 
to form before they would decide anything about whether continue whether to continue the war or institute land reform, which was. And it's important to note that Alexander II's land reforms were largely the cause of why the property situation was all fucked up in the first place, for as his reforms freed the serfs from slavery in one way, they made them slaves of their wage in another way. And I think this problematic situation with property ownership, which was capitalistic at heart, is significantly connected to the peasant support of a communist system, wherein Lenin decreed post-Lenin's revolution in October that land be the property of the... Yeah, land be the property of the whole people and shall pass into the use of those who cultivate it. Uh, in short, I think this really resounded with the peasantry and the workers, who, though they might have worked the land for a wage, still had an extremely difficult time in ever hoping to either own that land or their own labor, for that matter. The Constituent Assembly was Russia's great hope for a real democracy, finally. But it was taking a while for the Assembly to get organized, which meant that jack shit was getting done in the meantime in the eyes of the people of Russia. So they're just sitting there looking at the provisional government in the Winter Palace and going, this looks familiar. The provisional government in the Winter Palace was not looked upon well by the public. It led them to look to the Bolsheviks and... One Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who rode back in from Finland, and apparently Lindsay tells me that everyone kept on talking about how he was all gingered and crazy eyebrow. <laughs> well, they'd but, never seen him. They're like, oh, this is him. He's he's a ginger. I always see him as bald. Like, isn't he? A, he used to be a ginger? No, he had a ginger beard and shit. So, but he was quite a talker. He was quite a thinker. And so is his right-haired man, Leon Trotsky, um, who is also a military leader, handy, who traveled the lengths of the country in a special train, giving morale-boosting speeches to the troops during the Civil War, after the October Revolution especially. But at the time of the February Revolution, and for a lot of time after that, the Bolsheviks weren't the most popular. The Mensheviks and the Socialist Revolutionaries were. Oh, yeah. And Fanny Kaplan, who shot Lenin, was a Socialist Revolutionary remember from the very first podcast, she was super pissed about the Bolsheviks dissolving the Constituent Assembly. In fact, after the October Revolution, Lenin and the Bolsheviks pretended to sleep during the meeting while others sat with their feet up and giggled. And when the Bolsheviks lost the votes democratically in the Assembly, they mainly went to the Socialist Revolutionaries. They just ignored it and dissolved the whole fucking thing. But before all that, the Bolsheviks and the Petersburg Soviets took over the Winter Palace from the provisional government. So by Soviet, you mean... All right, right, right. So the word Soviet just means council. The Petersburg Soviet of workers worked parallel with the provisional government after the February Revolution, but there was a power struggle. There were kind of like two separate governments between the February and October Revolution. Lenin and the Bolsheviks declared a special allegiance with the Soviets, their rallying slogan being all power to the Soviets. So basically all power to the Soviets or remember Soviet is just a council, in the different cities throughout Russia, this is where Lenin wanted the power to lie. So kind of a big promise for democracy that all of these different councils should be ruling in the different cities. So in October of 1917, the Petersburg Soviets, along with the Bolsheviks, took the Winter Palace for themselves in one of the most rollicking palace takeovers I've ever read about. And I love it too, because he would have them reenact this later. Like, they would just have a big, huge festival with, like, real gunpowder and fireworks and reenact the taking of the Winter Palace. But um, when I was walking around in there, I totally loved, there's this place called the Malachite Drawing Room. And Malachite is just this, like, green, gorgeous stone, and 
when you were the czar, you could truck in as much as you want, make, you know, mantles and all that out of it. This is where the provisional government waited as the Winter Palace was stormed. Not just stormed in the sense of a bunch of people outside, in the sense that there was a battleship on the river shelling the place. So the palace got quite trashed in the raid, to say nothing of the people doing the raid, who found out that the imperial family over the years had gathered the finest wine cellar in all of Europe in the basement. <laughs> a few weeks later, when they all woke up, they called it the biggest hangover in history. The Bolsheviks were even worried if they should just pipe all the wine out into their Neva River rather than keep the debauchery going. <laughs> but from Catherine on, the palace had a second duty housing many art and cultural treasures. The portions of the palace known as the Hermitage were opened to the public as an art museum in 1852, with the Soviets expanding the museum to the rest of the castle after taking over after the October Revolution. When the Germans invaded and then grew closer to Leningrad in the 40s, the art collection was boxed up and attempted to be evacuated. When the Nazis invaded, the museum staff packed day and night for over a week. The first train headed toward the Orals, had that, and it had half a million exhibits in it. On uh, This was on July 1st, and on July 20th, a second train load with 700,000 exhibits in it was sent out. But after that, the Germans had taken the railway, so they had to try to make the other exhibits safe where they were in the Hermitage. The leftover crates were on the ground floor of the Hermitage, and they kept the porcelain in the basement and buried it in the sand. In the winter, a burst pipe flooded the cellar, and a team of little old lady museum guides had to walk into that ice-cold underground lake and walk around gingerly and dig them up with their bare hands. Oh, So the staff, like everyone else in Leningrad, had to kind of just make do with what they had to eat, so some of them just survived on stews of restorer's glue, which would have usually been used to restore the art, and some of the extra crates that they didn't get to use to box up the art were later used for coffins. But they kept on studying and working on their theses, apparently. <laughs> there was one thing I read that said that a couple of them were reprimanded constantly for filling their gas masks in books. <laughs> now, what, what is that? What do you mean? Describe that. I, 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 that's just what I read, and I, I can just imagine someone, like, walking around and... They're supposed to be carrying a gas mask with them, and they're using their gas mask as, like, a bag to carry their books in, is how I read it. Oh. Which is just oh, so adorably sad. It's kind of just amazing how the dedication that people still had to, like, the theater kept on going, and there's the infamous story of the seed vaults, where the the people that were charged with keeping these edible, edible seeds, where people were literally starving to death every single day, the scientific staff that was charged with keeping them safe starved to death with edible food all around them just to keep these, like, for future generations. Wow. But yeah, the guides at the Hermitage kept busy giving tours in the museum to soldiers from the front, and they would describe in details their beloved paintings that they'd had to cut from the frames. But in November of 1945, after the war, the museum was reopened to the public. But actually... The siege during World War II wasn't the only time that the people of this city had to defend their city. After the Soviets had come to power in 1970, in October, a civil war had ensued between the Reds and the Whites. The Red Guard of Petrograd was made up of soldiers and peasants and workers who were in favor of the Bolsheviks. 
And they defended the city against the whites, who were basically a broad mixture of people, like people who sympathized with the monarchy still, as well as people like Fania Kaplan and the socialist revolutionaries, who were still miffed and just flat out, they all agreed that the Bolsheviks needs to go. So this seemed to be their common reason for fighting um, the Reds. And lest we all forget, as it might not have been mentioned in your history classes, the U.S. actually sent troops to fight on the white side. Not a lot, but there were troops in parts of Russia that were fighting already already way back in the day. That's so weird to me. The Bolsheviks decided to move the capital. They took the capital from Petrograd to Moscow in 1918. As, as you will remember, they'd just been recently having to fight an enemy that was coming at them from the West. So they wanted to make their capital uh, unable to be taken by, okay, let's just say it, Germans, so easily. <laughs> and then later the city's name was changed from Petrograd to Leningrad after Lenin's death. Um, Stalin later regarded the city with his mentor as the namesake with a lot of suspicion. From Stalin, amazing. And he carried out many paranoia-filled purges here, as well as underpreparing it for the siege of Leningrad. After the fall of communism, it, like there was a, a vote among the city about what to change the name to, and it did pass that it should be St. Petersburg, but it wasn't by a, a decisive majority by any means. I mean, with the, the legacy of World War II, some people are really attached to the name of Leningrad. Anyway, if you keep on walking along the palace embankment past the Winter Palace, after a while you notice a ridiculously gaudy cathedral. At every mass of it that can have a jewel or a mosaic on it, friggin' does. It's like Candyland. It really is. The Church of the Resurrection of the Savior of Spilled Blood was built on the site where Alexander II fell when he was assassinated by a group of radicals known as the People's Will in 1881. These were the same people behind, well, several earlier attempts on his life. They'd been, been plotting another shot for a while. One of the group's leaders was a severe and dedicated young noblewoman named Sofia Perovskaya. Like a lot of revolutionaries, she started getting big ideas, then got bored with actually hanging out with peasants, and decided that starting a reign of violence would at least seem like they were doing something worthwhile, goddammit. The serfs had at this point been freed, but this group, as you kind of touched on, was alarmed at how wealth was being concentrated steadily upward into the hands of nobles and industrialists. So they decided that the thing to do would be to rent a tea shop on the side street that the Tsar would often ride down on Sundays when he was on his way to the Imperial Stables. What street is that? Uh, Malaya Sadovaya. Clearly the best form of action would be to dig a tunnel under the street, plant an absurd amount of explosives under it, and set it off when the carriage was going over it. So if that failed, they had the highly technical backup plan of having Sophia's honey, Andrei Zelyabov, um, go after him with a dagger. Um, they, they sound really wily coyote, I'm sorry. And in this one, wasn't the trouble was that Andre got arrested right as the preparations drew to a close, right? The cheese shop was searched, but the tunnel wasn't found. Still, on the day that the group were planning on having it blow, the SARS guard still thought better of having him head down the street and sought an alternate route for him to head over to watch the military parade. <clears throat> when the military parade was drawing to a close, and the SARS carriage, uh, a tough number that had been given to him by Napoleon III, it still hadn't gone by, the group 
figured out during this that he probably wouldn't be going that way on the return trip. They positioned themselves along the likely spot, which was the canal, and Sophia signaled them by blowing her nose when the carriage went by. Sophia signaled them, and it went about 100 to 150 yards past her when the first bomb was thrown. Uh, the carriage, a small boy, and a, one of the co- armored Cossacks following it were hit. At this point, though the carriage was basically unharmed, Alexander II decided to get out and assess the damage. Obviously, security guards were telling him that this wasn't such a good idea. He wasn't listening, and he decided to question the first bomber who was dying from, you know, having just been really near an explosion. He decides he wants to question the guy personally. Right there, right then. So the second bomber (laughs) threw his bomb and kaboom. The Tsar gets blown to kingdom come on the spot where the Church of the Resurrection of the Savior on the Blood was built. Um, He didn't die immediately. They actually dragged him back to the Winter Palace and the sled just trailing blood. But Sophia left unnoticed in the confusion. And the third unneeded bomber also managed to walk away. Um, The second one died in the attempt. Oh, but the first one, Rasikov, confessed and implicated others. Uh, the, The first bomber hadn't died in the attempt. It was the second one. But later, Sophia was caught and she was put on trial with five others and convicted. What's what with all the renaming that's gone on post-revolution and then post-post-revolution, I couldn't find the location where this happened or if it even still exists. But after they were, but they were driven out on carts with placards with regicide written on them. And then they all got hung. The church was built on the spot where the star was bombed. It wasn't ever really used as a functioning cathedral, though. And if you go inside right now, it's basically just a tourist trap with Fabergé eggs. And you have to pay, like, I don't know, something like... 400 rubles or maybe less. I don't know. Which is strange. It's a fucking church. Anyways, they just have state memorials for Alexander II all the time there. And after the revolution, it got looted and it sustained damage in World War II. It was used even as a storage warehouse for a nearby theater until it was restored. And now it, you know, it, well, it, it has a lot of mo- mosaics and just a big mosaic shrine, uh, shrines about Jesus and leading Alexander II's, linking Alexander II's death with crucifixion. Seems a bit, bit bigger though. I mean, and he was a reformer, as far as ours are concerned, especially compared to his son after them, and was just a reactionary asshole. So comparatively, he wasn't quite as bad. He did free the serfs and was on the way to have an execution when he was assassinated, but he still definitely believed in the idea of like autocratic rule and him being in charge. All right, let's go down. We'll go down to the Peter and Paul Fortress. And you can see it across the Neva River. It's a big, tall spire. It was one of the first buildings built in St. Petersburg, and it's the original citadel. And also, it was used as a jail. This is where Sofia Perovskaya, as well as pretty much anyone who pissed off anyone in charge, from Peter through to the Soviets, including the Decemberists, Kropotkin, Bakunin, Joseyevsky, Trotsky, and Tito. In the cathedral on the island, nearly all the Tsars after Peter are buried. There's a really neat story I read in a book about the Siege of Leningrad. During the siege, they tried to camouflage as many of the landmarks as they could so the German bombers flying overhead wouldn't be able to orient themselves. So they covered up, I already told you about the scaffolding on the bronze horsemen, but they tried to cover up, since it is that big tall spire, the Peter and Paul Cathedral and Fortress. So the the theater company would paint up these big canvas tarps that made things look just like barren rubble fields. And there was this poor young bastard who had to camouflage the fortress from the German bombers. And if you are walking in St. Petersburg, that is one of the tallest things you can see is this spire. And he had to climb up all the stairs and then like literally hang on to the angel 
that's at the top and hang on to that angel's wings to find a place to stick the pulley, to have the camouflage. And while he was up there, a German air raid started. He said the planes flew so close that he could see the expression on the pilot's faces. But apparently the camouflage worked and he managed to hang on um, and they didn't bomb the cathedral. We are staying on this side of the river, not going over to the Peter and Paul Fortress, and we're heading down the infamous Nevsky Prospect. Nevsky Prospect is the main street of St. Petersburg. Nikolai Gogol, the famous writer, wrote about Nevsky Prospect in his story called Nevsky Prospect. It's huge, and as we're here for, as we were, we were there for Russian Christmas, which is January 7th, Orthodox Christmas. The prospect was completely lit up with blue shiny lights and flashing electric signs, advertising swanky clothing stores and restaurants. And then there's this just gargantuan statue of Peter the Great, which has chunks bitten out by artillery attacks from the Germans during World War II. It's pretty awesome to see. Um, another fun tidbit about Nevsky Prospect's construction is that it was supposed to be built perfectly straight in accordance with Tsar Peter's wishes, except the workers got drunk, and now it has a big crook in the middle of it. Like Again, the Soviets changed the street's name to Proletkult Street after a Soviet artistic organization from 1918 to 1944. It was called that. And then in 1944, it was changed again to the Avenue of the 25th Octo- of October for the October Revolution. I'd have to agree with you that for purposes of research, um, the tendency of Russians to change the names of things is uh, fucking annoying. (laughs) Aside from the fancy shops, expensive apartments and clubs, there's also plenty of culture. There's Art Square, where there's another statue of Pushkin. You cannot walk around a corner without seeing a statue of Pushkin. Um, there's also the Russian Museum and the National Library are right off of it, as well as the Philharmonic Hall. We just said to head down a sign street. The Philharmonic Hall is called Shostakovich uh, Philharmonic Hall. Here's why. And it's a doozy. Um, in August of 1942, the city had already survived one winter of the siege, but just barely. And they'd planted, like, victory gardens everywhere. There was a great one. You could see, like, St. Isaac's right in the background. And they just planted a garden there. So they had enough food, probably, for the next winter, they felt. But the Germans were threatening a new offensive, where they might just try to take the city outright, having decided, you know, they starving it maybe hadn't worked. It was to the point that the Nazis were even bragging that they would be having a victory ball in the city on the date of August 9th, 1942, and they did not. A composer named Dmitry Shostakovich had started his Seventh Symphony in Leningrad. He was staying in the city at the beginning of the siege, And he was even like a fireman, but Stalin had him evacuated. He finished his symphony and had already premiered in Moscow, and they airlifted the sheet music into Leningrad to be performed there. And of course, they picked the date, August 9th, 1942, the day that Hitler flagged that they were going to be having a victory ball at the Waldorf. And at this point, thank goodness for Leningrad, the command of their defenses had been handed over from some of Stalin's most incompetent toadies, to Govorov. And not only did Govorov let some of his soldiers out of active duty to join the orchestra, but right before the concert started, he let loose a barrage of shells on all the German gun emplacements. 
to prevent the Germans from firing at the lit-up target of the Philharmonic Hall. So the symphony was performed with the conductor Carl Eliasberg. He just looked like a wraith in the tuxedo just hanging off him because he was all skinny from being starved the whole time. And the auditorium was packed and it was broadcast on Radio Leningrad and all over Russia, as well as on speakers facing forward towards the advancing German army so they could hear that the city was still surviving. Yeah, I guess we can't top that story, even with all the other tall tales we had to tell about St. Petersburg or Leningrad or Petrograd, whichever you prefer. In the abbreviational travelogue of St. Petersburg, I hope you enjoyed it and should you go? If you want to go to every single museum, do not stay at a hostel that also has a bar inside. <laughs>